Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. Hello, Darren. Good morning. Uh, and good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Yes, this week we're here to discuss a very special film, which is Peter Weir's 1998 uh, Truman Show, um, starring Jim Carrey. And joining us for that discussion, we have a first-time guest, Mr. Kurt North. How are you, Kurt? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm good. It's really good to have... It's, you know, the rare time somebody says one of the great things about this coronavirus crisis that we're in right now, but one of the interesting things about the coronavirus situation that we're in right now with the self-isolation is that it's, it's given myself and Andrew kind of an impetus to invite on people remotely. Um, because typically we've kind of liked having people kind of in the room in terms of like reading responses and engagement people. We found that it's quite difficult sometimes to get a sense of that while we're recording remotely. But since everybody's recording remotely at the moment, we figured that this would be a great opportunity to have on people we'd always wanted to have on, but never had the chance to. So thank you very much for joining us, Chris. It's our, it's our hands across the world. Um, yeah, but not like the movie Us, to be clear. Like the good one, like the happy one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, bringing, bringing people together through podcasts. Yeah. Oh, but uh, crucially also isolating people. But unfortunately, I'm not isolating <laughs> at the moment. I'm still working hard. So it's uh, it's a unique experience for me because um, I'm what's considered a key worker. So I'm literally still going to work, ah. I'm still um, getting home at half five and then coming onto a podcast to talk about this film. So it's uh, it's a rather unique experience for me having having this weird feeling where I go to work and there's hardly anyone there and having to come home um, and then having have hardly anyone here. So, <laughs> so it's quite unique, really. This is something I always find interesting when I talk to people, like who have an excuse to go out into the world, unlike myself, where I'm like, when you're wandering through these spaces that are open because they're essential services outside of stuff like hospitals, is it like 28 days later? Are these spaces abandoned yeah. and as empty as you imagine they would be under these situations, you know, the circumstances? And are those zombies like the slow zombies or the really fast trust me, ones? Trust me, I have, I have, like... I have um, seen some zombies um, who should not be out uh, <laughs> and have no idea what the concept of a, a, a pandemic is. So it's, uh, yeah, you get, you get all kinds, especially being in the tourist trap where I, I am actually from. Um, it's not been too bad the last few days, but there has been camper vans. There have been ho- um, children holiday. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's, wow. Um, yeah. So oh, it's, it's been really interesting to to see that. Now we obviously we can't make a judgment on some of them because some of them might be just driving up in a camper van. But the I think the the first weekend of lockdown didn't go down too well. Put it that way. And the uh, the Lake District was full of people. So, uh, but it's been a remarkable change this weekend compared to last. Okay, so these people are kind of taking it seriously as well. Um, they're starting to, yeah, but they still get they still get the zombies wandering yeah. around. But um, but yeah, they're just few and far between. Yeah, it's like season six of The Walking Dead rather than season one. <laughs> the the budget has kind of stretched. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and no, not not knowing their circumstances, it's more difficult to get infected with rage. Um, <laughs> so um, at least there's that. But yeah, so. We invited Kurt on uh, and we said, what would you like to talk about? And Kurt came back with a list of movies that he kind of wanted to talk about from the list, many of which we'd already covered already, which is very reassuring because it implies that we're actually getting through this project in a very serious and substantial way. Um, but one of the... <laughs> Andrew's kind of delighted. I like, yeah, yeah. Makes it seem makes it seem like a finite 
reasonable endeavor. Yeah. Like, um, As yeah. opposed to something constantly changing. But one of the films you came back with, which we hadn't covered, was The Truman Show. Um, and I'm kind of curious, Kurt, why did you pick The Truman Show? What was it about The Truman Show, uh, show that drew you to it? Particularly in the context of having a list of 250 movies. What is it about Because this? all the other ones I asked for, you'd already done or are doing. Or <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's this, an- all right, there's this anniversary, there's this anniversary happening. Or oh, there's that anniversary happening. Oh, we've done that one. Oh, I'm recording that next week. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but... The second AD just died, so we need to we need to commemorate um, this uh, this movie. Yeah, no, but, but in, all, in all seriousness, there's a, I have a very unique um, film viewing. Uh, when I like I like um, concept movies, so things like Inception, things like Truman Show. So um, that's what I particularly focus on. So those are the, the type of films that I were I was looking at. There's other ones, obviously. You know the things the the, the classic, the Christopher Nolan stuff. I absolutely adore, but. Um, you know, it's things like the that like the concept movies that I'm really into, and hence the reason why Truman Show jumped out at me. Do you remember the first time you saw the Truman Show? Did you see it in cinema? Did you discover it on home media? Was it pointed out to you? Were you did you know what it was when you went into it? Uh, yes, because Jim Carrey at the time was huge, so it was and it was classed as his um, first serious role. Which you know, whether or not you can really class that as his first serious role, I don't know, but. Um, but yeah, I remember I, I remember watching it in the theatre because it was the same year as the X File movie came out. So I remember, yeah, yeah so I, I remember seeing it in the movie. I think I might have even went to see it twice, uh, but memory doesn't quite serve me right on that. But I do remember going to because it was the where are we ninety eight? So I was eighteen. So I was just coming in the summer of um, end of sixth form. So I was just literally finishing um, secondary education. And uh, finally, in two years of sixth form, so I just completed my A levels. We're touching a, a, like a Venn diagram of stuff that Darren is interested in. So, so uh, late nineties summers, X Files, Nolan movies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like this is going very well. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you, Andrew. Um, but in terms of your immediate reaction to it, now again, we're gonna we're not we're gonna talk about it broadly. We're not gonna go into too much depth in case listeners ha- somehow haven't seen or haven't heard of The Truman Show. But coming out of it, what was your immediate response? Were you taken with it? Did you have to process it? Was that second viewing a triumphant, I need to see this again in order to see it's, if it's as good as I thought it was? Or was the second viewing more like, I'm not sure what I made of it. I need another go round. Um, I think it was, I need to see it again because it wasn't a film. I would use a, a, a modern, a more modern film that I've seen of in in later years of Arrival, for example, or or, or even think something like you know Mulholland Drive. I know that was a lot earlier, but it's a film I've only seen in recent history where I needed to go and see it again. Inception was the same thing as well, um, but I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I was I was surprised by Jim Carrey. Um, I thought that the performance was brilliant. Um, as I say, I love a con- good concept anyway, and it was the the that whole. Um, Kind of full fullness of of story and and how light it was as well. It wasn't it wasn't anything too um, too dark and that as and that's normally something, an avenue I would normally go down. But um, it was just a really great watch and it was one I I instantly wanted to see again. Um, and Andrew, actually, do you remember the first time that you saw it? Did you see it in cinemas? Did you see it on DVD? Was it kind of brought to you? Was it in the context of I know you talked about seeing Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and that making an impression on you as well. It was brought to me. 
<laughs> is this your first time watching the Truman Show? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, that just sounds like a great way to kind of experience the movie. Like, like um, I imagine it on a kind of lifted on a throne. Yeah. Kind of. Um, Peter pre- Weir and present. Andrew Nicole kind of carrying yeah. it in reels towards. Yeah. You. It's like, does this please you? Um, <laughs> While the John Wayne no. from Indiana Jones plays in the background. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I I have no idea where I, when I when I first saw this. I imagine it was on home video or home DVD, even maybe. Um, and no, it, it, like, and it could it could equally have been like the big kind of Christmas movie on Network Two um, that we watched over um, over Christmas. I don't know. I'm 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 not I'm not certain. I feel I feel I feel like I watched it around the time of the movie coming out, but I don't think I I'm not sure. I I don't think I saw it in the cinema. It's strange because I, I, I do I did I did quite like um, Jim Carrey. I know I had definitely seen stuff like The Mask um, and Liar Liar the Batman previous year forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, in the in the cinema, but I, no, I don't think I saw this one. Um, and the one one thing that surprised me watching it as well was that the in my in my head, yes, it was the serious movie that that Jim Carrey has done, where he's doing something a little bit different. What I forgot, and what I what I noticed watching it this time is how Jim Carrey esque um, a lot of it is like he he kind of gets to do the the sort of um, elasticity um, thing some of the is, yeah. yeah 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 and so no what kind of uh, wild sort of anarchic kind of um, was it uh, <laughs> that's one of, one of the outtakes from um, from liar liar <laughs> is um, is one of his co stars calling him an yeah. over actor <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it, it, it like he he obviously took it well enough. But um, yeah, it it is it is kind of um, I don't I never mind it in a in a in a Jim Carrey movie because you know what you're watching. But this movie, I suppose, I had it in my head that it was that it was not that kind of movie. But it it is to some extent. It's other stuff as well, obviously. But but it's also yeah. I was going to say it's it's restrained, which is why I was saying you know it's not quite a serious movie as such because it's yeah it, it's it's satirical, isn't it? So there's, there's there's elements to it that's all right, okay. But at the same time, it's kind of a restrained Jim Carrey as much as you can restrain him, really. At that at that point, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great. Now we're we're kind of talking around the premise because there's actually some debate in circles about what constitutes a spoiler with the Truman Show, and there was some argument about whether the trailers to the film spoiled the movie by revealing its core premise. But one of the things I absolutely love about kind of the interviews that you read around the Truman Show and around its production is that you get interviews with Peter Weir and Jim Carrey, and you get like explanations of like occasionally Peter would tell me just do what I want, go off, do your thing, and it's like and so the, the example that he picks is a sequence where it's like. I remember spending a whole day with the lawnmower in the backyard. (laughs) And if you're watching the film, the sequence in which Truman's playing with the lawnmower in the backyard is shot in long distance and lasts all of three seconds, but apparently took a whole day of Jim Carrey playing around with the lawnmower, which I kind of adore (laughs) in terms of the film's production. Is this this before or after Man on the Moon? This is just before, before, I guess. Before he jumped right into it afterwards. He jumped right into Man on the Moon afterwards as well. 
Um, so yeah, no, yeah. this is very much on the. It's not just Milos Forman has had to put up with like a day being ruined by Jim Carrey. No, uh, when Peter Weir would talk about how yeah, he basically his his what how his approach to Carrey was to let him do what he wanted to do and then do what he wanted to be put in the film after. So if, if, it's going to wear him out like a toddler. Him out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, like dealing with a toddler. You let him have his little sort of. Don't give him any Coca Cola <laughs> either. Yeah, no sugar based yeah. products. Um, all right then. Uh, I actually, I, what's interesting is I actually have a memory of seeing this film, which is kind of interesting because so many of them are so many late nineties films are generic. Because I remember seeing them with my family or whatever. This one I remember seeing specifically in the cinema. And I remember seeing it in the cinema because I was a big Jim Carrey fan. Like most teenage boys my age, I would have been, what, 10, 11 at that point when it came out. Um, and what I remember about it is being taken by the fact, I was surprised, I was caught off guard by the fact that it wasn't a straight up comedy. Um, I was kind of expecting a big picture of Jim Carrey with a stupid expression on his face. This is going to be a goofy movie that's going to be hilarious. And it is hilarious, um, but it maybe isn't hilarious. He's speaking because... out of his ass. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point, and they set it up. They set up a sequence where it looks like he's going to talk out of his ass, but he doesn't. It's very disappointing <laughs> for my 10-year-old self. Um, and you, can, you know exactly the shot I'm talking about. But the... You're rubbing your hands together. There's his ass. Yeah, and he's talking. Oh, boy. Yeah, all they need to do is just bring these two elements together they've set them up beautifully they've lined them up they just need to take the shot but yeah as a, as a kid watching it i was kind of caught off guard it now it is as watching it as an adult i find it hilarious but as a 10 year old kid it wasn't quite what i was expecting from a jim carrey movie and what's interesting is that even though it wasn't i was kind of immediately drawn to it i'm not sure if i loved it but i was fascinated by it um, and I remember going to school after it was released because it was a PG movie and everybody could go see it. It was wide audiences, kind of acceptable. You didn't have to sneak in. You could go and see it. And I remember people in class being like, yeah, it's not a funny Jim Carrey movie. Therefore, it's a bad movie. It's a terrible movie. It's not a Jim Carrey movie that I wanted to go see. And I remember that being kind of the abiding wisdom, at least among my my friends who were around the age of 10 or 11 at the time, primary school age. Actually. Did, you, did you counter that, Darren, in order to win, like, cool points? Yes. You I... say, well, actually, let's yeah. say... Um, uh, sorry, we haven't gotten to what the movie is about yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine a 10-year-old Darren just um, trying to explain to the other kids just why it wasn't a funny movie. Yeah. <laughs> Exploration of solipsism. <laughs> yeah. Haven't you kids read any, any of your Descartes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to be handing out copies of Plato. I want you to read them over the weekend and get back to me with a 3,000 word essay on why the Truman Show is hilarious. Um, but yeah, no, I, I remember that. And I remember it being something that I came back to again and again as a teenager and kind of gradually came to, to love and adore. And being entirely honest, this is safely one of my top 50 films ever, probably in my top 20 films ever. I adore it. I absolutely Ooh. love it. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a nice segue into talking about the three questions that we ask. So, Kurt, yes. do you think The Truman Show belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I, I think I think the I think timing is a lot to do with it as well, because it's it sits right in between having the um, reality shows that we have nowadays, which are very much me, 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 I, it's me, look at me, and where it was just on the cusp of things like Big Brother where people were going in for the experience. And this was this was kind of like it never quite... It, this is what we expected to kind of see moving forward. And 
I think it just it was the right time for the right the right film, the right time. And I think it's brilliantly um brilliantly produced and and looking at some of the behind the scenes of what the film was going to be, it was going to be a lot darker and things like that. I don't think would have worked as much or would have stayed in the in the memory as much. I think the the utopianness of it and uh, kind of like the entropy of 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 his life and how how it all breaks down and and um, you know and 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 that's the, and poses the questions at the end as well. I think is is definitely a reason why it should be up there because it's uh, it asks really pertinent questions and and doesn't give you answers. It lets you. That let you think about it and andrew what about yourself absolutely yeah no i 100 percent. it's a it's a very important movie was it's um and it's it's terrific in so many ways there's a lot to kind of recommend about it like i you know, uh, uh, darren probably knows i'm a big philip glass fan and and I, I I suppose um, the 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 things that Philip Glass is is guilty of he's guilty of in this movie he he he, um, he does some of the music for the for the soundtrack yeah and it is kind of um, reproducing some of kind of ideas that you'd be familiar with from his music but getting getting back to kind of not talking about music so much it's it's incredible because it's doing so many things it's a kind of a it's a sort of like a Frank Capra movie, but like Frank Capra has his pulse on the kind of nineteen ninety eight zeitgeist, and it 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 has that that re- reacting against kind of conformity, but also the the the, the 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 relationship that you have with your place. It has um, all the stuff about. Um, the oncoming kind of onslaught of, of reality television. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just an, it's an incredibly rich movie, like thematically, but it's also extremely entertaining. It's very funny. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, I agree that it belongs in the 250. Sorry. That just reminded me of the great joke, you know, the, uh, the, I love that Philip Glass piece, which one, all of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> But yeah, um, and I actually agree with Andrew entirely on this. It's one of those rare movies that is both, well, not both, it's, is like genuinely, A, incredibly of its time in that you look at it and it's an artifact of 1998. It's an artifact of where we were culturally in 1998. It's a snapshot of a moment captured in film. It is also simultaneously ahead of the curve. It's a, it's a movie that you look at in 2018 or even 2020 and go, actually, this is probably a lot more relevant in some ways than it was when it was released. Now, there are other ways in which Curtis suggested that it, you know, maybe ha- didn't get everything exactly right, but it got enough right that it's a little bit uncanny and uncomfortable to watch. And in fact, actually, you imagine that a movie doing the same sort of stuff today would feel immediately dated or awkward because it would be too on the nose or too heavy handed. And while doing both of those things, it does a third thing, which is absolutely incredible, which is that it is also completely timeless. Um, It is at its core, this quintessential sort of existential narrative. It's a story about a man trying to find his place in the world. It's, and again, we, we kind of talked about this when we talked about like the Matrix last year. And we talked about this idea of the late 90s and this sort of hero's journey and the Campbellian sort of narrative. And this idea of like trying to find your place in the world or make sense of the world. And The Truman Show is one of those. It's it's 
at its core, it's arguably a kind of a Star Wars type narrative. It's a story of a son and a father and a son going out into the world and persevering and pushing forward and leaving home in a very archetypal sort of way. Now, it's a lot of things. Hey, on top spoilers of for Star Wars. <laughs> Sorry. Star Wars may be about dad stuff. Seriously? Um, but yes. But I never like, knew that. I know. I, know. <laughs> I think that, that's the podcast right there. We should pause right now and just lay the latest theory bare. Um, but no, I mean, that that's the thing that I really love about The Truman Show is that it's all of these things. It's it's incredibly specific. It's incredibly prophetic. But it's also, at its core, wonderfully archetypal. So you can watch it in any number of ways and from any number of perspectives. And it is exactly what Andrew said. It is also great fun. Um, I watched it, I think, for the first time in a couple of years uh, for the podcast last night. And it is... I keep forgetting how hilarious it is. And not in the sense of like, look at Jim Carrey doing rubber expressions and, you know, sort of like playing with the lawnmower in that wide shot. More in the sense of the script having these wonderful biting wry lines, which are so much darker, but so much more kind of like sharp than you remember them being. And then like the framing and composition and production design would lead you to believe that they are. It is, it's a fantastic accomplishment. And I think it's, it's one of the great American movies, I would argue. Um, so yeah, I, I agree entirely. And then second question, Kurt, uh, which is, would it be on your own personal 250? So of your 250 favorite movies ever, is this enshrined in that? Yes, it would be. I think, again, I keep harking on about this, um, the concept movie that, that, that I absolutely adore. And this would be high up on that list because, you mentioned about timeless. I mean, the way that it's set in, um, you know, it's it's kind of dateless. It's almost like you know, put a, it's like a kind of nuclear family kind of thing. It's it's not it's very old school, and it's kind of fifties look as well, isn't it? That's it's that kind of um, aspect to it as well. But they also the it's something that I can keep coming back to. You know, as you mentioned there about coming back to something after not seeing it for a few years and and you know, finding it just joyful to watch. I mean, and I think that's the thing. That's the real good. Uh, element with this film is that it's not something that you go oh fancy watching that um let's put that on because i enjoy that film it's something that you may well put into the back corner and, and then kind of go right what can i watch that's going to um really kind of um what's the, probably the best word for it um you know that you, you want fills you with joy in some ways and and uh and you think right well, truman show will do that for me it gives me that those feels of uh you know i really want something that's light-hearted that's um funny but also as a as a good strong um theme and uh meaning to it and i think that truman show really does that so yeah it would definitely be up definitely be in my top i'd say at least top 20 wow this is turning out to be quite the positive podcast and andrew what about yourself yeah, I'd say the same. Like the the um, and you know how much I love RoboCop references. This has that kind of um, whole idea of kind of uh, corporations encroaching on uh, humanity yeah. um, in it, and the 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 um, the things that have 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 stopped being kind of public and have become private. Um, and no, it's a it's a it's a delicious movie. And it, it it'll it it would it would it would definitely be on my own as well, yeah. Yeah, and I mentioned already it's it's pro- it's in my top fifty comfortably, probably in my top twenty. Um, absolutely, and again, it's something that stayed with me as well. And watching it again, I was kind of it was amazing how much of it that I recalled scene for scene, shot for shot. It is a beautiful movie, um, even beyond its themes. It just has this kind of look and feel to it and texture to it that I really really like. And then final question, Kurt. Um. If listeners have not yet seen The Truman Show, if they they haven't kind of encountered it before, should they pause the podcast, stay indoors, 
and stream it to their television set. Uh, if you were Kim Kardashian, I would say this is what you could have been. So I think I'll definitely give it to Kim Kardashian. Uh, no, yeah, I think I think it's it's one of those you mentioned about it being PG and that it's it's easy to watch and you know if you don't have that preconception of a Jim Carrey movie and you don't know who Jim Carrey is or you, you're aware of him but don't know how, just how big he was. You, you mentioned like The Mask and you know, obviously the Ace Ventura and and Liar Liar just before it. If you if you haven't got that preconception in your head uh, and you just put say watch this movie, watch this PG movie. Uh, I think it's it's a movie for all, so it's it's almost like you can you can almost make it a tradition tradition in uh, on some ho- some holidays. I'm sure some people do. Yeah, because it does have that kind of Andrew described as a Frank Capra esque sort of sentiment to it. It does feel very wholesome, very all American, and very sort of all encompassing. And what's interesting about the Truman Show is that it uh, well, two things about it is it's the it had at its time of release the third highest opening weekend of a Jim Carrey movie. Um, and the second highest um, per screen average behind only uh, Batman Forever and Ace Ventura 2 Pet Detective, uh, which is quite an accomplishment in terms of like a film that has been described as a $60 million art house film, um, which is quite, quite an accomplishment. And the second thing is that it had an interesting kind of like post-release cycle as well. And it's interesting if you look at, say, the IMDb 250, how it how it existed on there. It was very much the film finished production in, or sorry, finished post-production in January of the year it was released, given the production team five months of having a finished film. And what they did was they kind of started building hype around it. In some ways, it's it's arguably like the template for the modern kind of like artsy studio indie, studio indie where they basically took it to colleges and they showed it to critics. There's very famously an Esquire article which called it the best movie of the decade three months before it was released in cinemas. You had Kerry doing press. You had Weir sitting down and doing interviews all before anybody had seen a single frame of this. And so as a result, it kind of arrived as a juggernaut. And what's interesting is that while some people immediately embraced it enthusiastically it was you know it made the la times it was the la times's favorite movie of the year for example it was on ebert's top 10 you know it featured in countless end of decades lists there was a kind of an immediate backlash against it which is something that you see a lot these days with movies like say la la land to pick an arbitrary and random example that i has absolutely no bearing on this conversation whatsoever but you have these movies that are like that generate these kind of warmth from kind of critical and early screenings. And then when they arrive, there's this immediate, well, it's not as good as they said it was reaction. And that happened with the Truman show. Yeah. The Truman show entered. It's the, it's the ho- ho- hosier effect. <laughs> That's the technical <laughs> term, the scientific and academic yeah, term. Yeah. Um, I no, I just remember the, it happens with music as well, where um, hosier is cool as long as kind of, People are kind of sharing it on their kind of, you know, Facebook or on or on Twitter. And then they realize, oh, hold on, this has gotten really big. And now it's headlining like a big um, uh, uh, music festival. And on, now now I don't like Hosier anymore. I suppose that, 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 was, that was maybe the, um, what you call it, the tall poppies here. But definitely also kind of uh, hipsterism about, um, about something being... Um, yeah, you have to be careful if you're a movie not to be like that. Much. <laughs> <laughs> not to be like that much before you're released. That's the that's the key. Yeah, that's yeah. the sweet spot. It's the hype cycle, isn't it? It's the, the one where you have like the expectations and the reaction and then the leveling out at the end. And that kind of happened with the Truman Show because the Truman Show on initial release entered the IMDb in its top fifty. Within the next two years, it had dropped off completely. It didn't re-enter the two fifty until twenty ten. 
and it somehow managed to climb from number 250 in February 2010, and it currently resides, I think, around 130, um, which is quite an accomplishment for a film. What? So it's actually what happened in 2010. Dropped out. <laughs> that kind of brought it back up. Yeah. Did you mention Kim Kardashian? I did. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I I, hopefully where, that's the first and only time it'll ever get mentioned on the 250. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to think kind of like what sort of, um, what, what, what was the reality TV kind of uh, story of the day that um, was, was, was getting people back interested in? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, 2010, Darren. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Any theories? Again, well, I mean, it's it's worth noting that the movie did undergo a surge in popularity. Thank you for asking this, Andrew. I really, really appreciate this. <laughs> it did undergo a surge in popularity in the middle of the the 2010s, in large part due to you mentioned Kim Kardashian. Ironically enough, Kanye West of all people, um, who was described as having a a Truman Show moment at the VMAs. He very famously described his moment. You know that famous "I'm a let you finish" moment. He compared it to a sequence, and again, I'm going to keep this spoiler-free and context-free, but listeners who have seen the movie will know which scene it is, as the point at which the boat reaches the edge of the world in The Truman Show. That's how Kanye West defined his I'ma let you finish moment. Um, but yeah, so it's basically, so that could arguably be part of it as well. It's also, I think, maybe perhaps that we have a bit of distance from it as well, and so you have a bit of retrospective. <laughs> And he knew he knew he he was in a television show when like producers and security were grabbing him and kind of um, taking him away and uh, pulling him, telling him to stop. And then he, he saw all the cameras around him and stuff. Yeah, I if I were Kanye West, I would think that I was also um, a character <laughs> in a television show <laughs> because of the amount of time I spend on television. Um, um, and the amount of cameras right. around you and the amount of attention that's paid to you yeah I, it, 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 come on though like just because the movie um, The Truman Show has decided that they won't give any spoilers um, that um, that could be uh, more narrowly viewed as the movie's actual premise yeah. like I, 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 I suppose we haven't given away too much yet, and like, why would we when we're just about to? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love the spite of Andrew is, waiting until two minutes silly. before. Yeah, two minutes before the spoiler zone. <laughs> it's so wonderfully petty. I love the idea of people listening to this going, they're very good. They're not going into any depth whatsoever. I can safely listen until the spoiler zone buzzer. And Andrew's like, no, gotcha. <laughs> No, yeah. I, I think everybody's I, I, aware I just, of the premise, to be fair. I think it's permeated pop so, culture. Yeah. I think when you get Kanye West referencing it, I think there's a sense of like a pop mm. culture threshold there. That said, if you haven't seen the movie, if you are somehow not aware of it, Andrew, would you recommend that they go and watch it? Yeah, and it's a funny thing. The uh, Jim Carrey movie for people who are like, oh, I don't like Jim Carrey. Because it occurs to me that probably another movie that we've discussed that I would have on a list of my top movies and that I'd recommend to most people, especially if they haven't seen it, is um, Eternal Sunshine, which is another um, kind of... Uh, Jim Carrey movie for very... people who don't like Jim Carrey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which reminds me of another kind of 90s cartoonish comedy actor um, who has kind of... Um, that I, I suppose we'll we'll talk about him in in in, in the oh, blogs. Oh, keeping me, keeping um, me, keeping me in suspense. 
Um, well, you can probably tell like what the plug is going to be because everybody else that we've had on the podcast so far is recommended. Oh, oh, you finally <laughs> got around to watching it. <laughs> I finally got around to watching it. Okay, well, we're going to keep listeners uh, in suspense now. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It's Tiger King. Um, <laughs> yeah. <no>. On Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, to, I would second Andrew's recommendation uh, without being anywhere near as coy with, with spoilers. Yes, absolutely go watch it. Um, it is it is brilliant. It's wonderful. It's an hour and 40 minutes as well, and it moves incredibly quickly. Again, I was taken watching it last night and how quickly it moves through all of its kind of premises and setups and how quickly it gets where it's going and how it kind of changes things up as well at certain points it's a very engaging yeah. very easy watch i was shocked i was shocked how how quick it gets into it all right as well like they, they um, i didn't i didn't like because like not to spoil too much but they're they're um everybody has a kind of a a reality it's 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 incredible how quickly um, uh, Truman's reality starts to 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 to, to fall thirty apart. minutes. Yeah, thirty um, minutes. I actually, when I watched yeah. it, I actually looked down at the time, and it's it's it takes thirty minutes for things to start falling apart, and it's and and I was surprised by that as well. And it's clearly defined three structure uh, three act structure as well. You you see the the, the way it's moving into the acts quite easily. Um, and you know, you, you we get to a point, and it's like, right, we're really going to tell you where we're at, where we are in the story here, um, which is which is really really unique for that type of film because you'd think it would be laid more, and um, and I mean that from a point of view of you know trying to throw the audience off, but this one is is clear as day about what it's doing and how it's doing it. Um, but yeah, thirty minutes is, is when I was like, oh god, we're here already. So, yes, I was surprised by that. I don't know if Andrew knows this, actually, but it's worth mentioning. This was written by Andrew Nicole, um, who we may know as the writer and director of Gattaca. Oh, uh, yeah. I thought I recognized it, it, the name all right and meant to Google it. Because <laughs> I was like, Andrew Nicole, and then I opened the window, and God knows what I ended up looking up instead. Um, yeah. The Andrew show would be a very all different right. experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what happens. You just uh, kind of hear the the um, the curtains kind of uh, blowing. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's mostly the camera panning oh, away. Yeah, it's mostly. I have I have I have antipodes um, and <laughs> um, an ant antipode and lots of pictures of antipodes, and we'll find out. That's, what antipodes are. That's somewhat more on. interesting than I imagined it was going to be. So congratulations <laughs> on that. Um, what's interesting though is that like uh, Nicole had actually pitched this. Um, he sold the script in 1993, and Kurt alluded to this, and we'll talk about it in the spoiler zone a bit much a bit more. How his original idea for the film was radically different from the version that ended up on on screen. But one of the interesting things is he originally wanted to direct it. Um, and he was told in no way would he be allowed to direct a $60 million studio film starring Jim Carrey, which is why he went off and he wrote Gattaca, because he could write a movie that was $20 million and starred Ethan Hawke that he could direct himself, actually, which I thought was very, very cool. Uh, anyway. Speaking of uh, of Andrew Pold. Uh, oh, sorry. Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Nicole. Andrew Pold. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's from New Zealand. He is a Yeah, yeah. So the um, 
And I suppose if you don't know what an antipode is, <laughs> that, that, that connection yeah, point of connection makes he's, sense. He's anti antipodean. Um, yeah. is, is, is what it is. All right then. Um, <laughs> With that in mind, then <laughs> we'll segue neatly into the spoiler. Zone. So, Kurt, what is the Truman Show about for you? Truman Show for me is about Jim Carrey uh, and his first semi-series role. It's also for me about um, the breakdown of perfection and how perfection can, um, you know, everyone wants to be wants to um, have an aspiration to be or. To be where um, Jim Carrey is in this film, it's, it's you know he's he's got the perfect life, the perfect story, but that is just not sustainable, and 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 um, real life gets in the way, and it how and how that breaks down. Um, that's kind of how it feels for me. Don't believe it. Uh, having an office job in an insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no. I I have to admit it is it is. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not that one, but the the, the idea of the, of this this world that you can live in, which is which is viewed as perfect and uh, almost like utopian in a way, but that's just things like that. No, no matter what your what your story is, it, it's not going to be like that. Things happen, and um, and life life will get in the way, and things will happen to you, and um, you know, and you need to find yourself as as well, which is a, which is a major part of this film for me. It's you know, it's finding who you are and uh, and what you want to do, and obviously, you know, it starts off as 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 perfection, as what what is viewed as his perfect day. You know, the good evening, good afternoon, good night um, phrase, um, but then quickly and sh- and and obviously it starts to break down, and and how how that breaks down because of the the needs that he has, which aren't what he first believed it would should have been yeah it's it's interesting because it's very much a late 90s movie again the style of like we talked about movies like fight club for example we talked about american beauty we talked about the matrix because i mean it is office space as well like um i guess sorry i always try i always throw that one in um the the, the reference to office space is the whole kind of like idea of not wanting to 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 conform to this um sort of the, this this thing that we we this life that we had resisted thinking about when when we were children and couldn't imagine for ourselves and then now find ourselves trapped in um yeah th- i guess that's it because it's like one of the things is you go back and you look at say the archetypal stories of the 70s and the 60s and those are all about like rebelling against parents in a turbulent world it's all chaotic you know watergate's happening the vietnam war is raging and so your coming of age stories are all kind of filtered through that lens you know you have like star wars which is this cataclysmic sort of like existential struggle in which it's about a father trying to break free of his you know son trying to break free of his father and you have that sort of archetype kind of playing the godfather <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, even the God, the Godfather is similar. A, a, a son trying to break free of, uh, yeah. Yeah, and again, like, it's, it's very... Father while, 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 while also seeking his father's... Approval. Um, 
Yeah. But you again, you you have that kind of sense of like those old stories in the sixties and seventies being defined by like trauma, struggle, and imperfect world, things being terrible, and like conditions being awful, and people being at one another's throats. And then you get to the nineties, and you know it's it's again stereotypes, two fifty cliche storm coming in here. Everything is a little history. bit too good. Yeah, that's it exactly. End of history, unipolar yeah. moment, prosperity, economic boom. Like, people have good jobs. Unemployment rate is low. There are no real foreign wars being fought in a sense of, like, no troops on the ground. Obviously, there's stuff happening in Eastern Europe. There's U.S. interventions in Haiti and stuff like that. But there's nothing like, say, the Vietnam War or what would be the Iraq and Afghanistan Wars. So, th- so why, why am I not happy there? <laughs> that's it, exactly. That, like, that, that, that's exactly what it gets at. It gets at this idea that you have this perfect life. That like you've reached this point at the end of the 20th century where you have literally everything that you could ever want. Um, and all of a sudden you're still not happy about it and you see it reflected in in multiple ways you know in in fight club you have the narrator with his ikea furnished apartment that he literally blows up you have lester burnham um in and again i kind of like that it's burnham and burbank um are the two characters which is interesting but lester burnham in american beauty who just kind of blows up his life because he's having a midlife crisis and wants to bang his teenage daughter's best friend but you have even like you know you want to talk about the matrix where neo kind of is this IT worker that you mentioned, but who somehow gets drafted into a revolution that we don't even realize is happening, man. And what I really like about like the Truman Show and what I think makes the Truman Show better than any of those is that it finds a way to tell that story without ever seeming as cynical or as kind of angry or as kind of entitled and bitter. It isn't frustrated or angry. It's more kind of yearning and wondrous like Truman. And again, this is probably where the casting of Jim Carrey is so good, I think, in the role. Truman honestly seems like a child. He seems like a kid looking at the world, wondering why he doesn't feel happy. And you have this, again, the discussion that comes up repeatedly with Fiji, where it's like, when I grow up, I want to be an explorer. Well, too late. Everywhere's already been discovered. Um, that sort of stuff. Or I want to fly to Fiji because it's as far away as you can go with before you start coming back again. And it's just kind of very... That, that, would, that would be known as an antipode, Darren. Ah, um, nice segue. Tell us what an antipode is. Do you know... Do you, do you, uh, it's the furthest place uh, from here um, that you can get without coming back. Um, and the, the, the opposite side of the world to Fiji is actually uh, Timbuktu. Ah, it's interesting. And it, it's, it's, it's very rare, actually, for a uh, a place for for two land masses um to uh to to meet in an antipode because most of uh the southern hemisphere is uh, is water and the the um the land masses that are there like the, the the part of africa that's below the equator i think is um it's it i think it's in the um pacific on the other side and uh, australia is in the atlantic ocean on the other side like if you were to draw a line through 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 the through the center of the earth and we 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 call um uh, new zealand um and i think australian people as well we call them antipodean because they're 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 from the other side of the world to us new zealand being on the other side of the world to kind of uh almost to ireland and the uk but also i, I think closer to Portugal. Ah. So yes, that's why that's why I was googling antipodes. 
I thought you yeah. just started typing A N and then just took like the first suggestion that you didn't know out of curiosity. <laughs> Google suggests. <laughs> Wonderful. I was yeah. Short span my, of attention. My, I have really bad Google alerts. <laughs> it's like this isn't me. Um, <laughs> the, uh, stupid Google. Um, yeah, but um, no, it's interesting be, 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 because that, that, like, that's the reason he gives for wanting to go to Fiji, and it's funny because it's on the, the other side of the world from Timbuktu, where people kind of say, "Oh, he could be in Timbuktu by now." Yeah. But the real reason he wants to go to Fiji is um, is obviously just. Exactly. Or is it Laura? Um, oh, yes, I'm because, getting Twin Peaks vibes now. Sorry. <laughs> 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 is it Laura? I don't know. Well, what's, what's interesting, though, um, is that, like, and again, talking about the childlike innocence, I'm um, kind of alluding to this. The movie was originally planned to be very, very, very different. Um, when the script was written in 1993, it was the subject of a bidding war between Paramount and Warner Brothers. It was eventually sold for $1.5 million, which is uh, quite a lot of money for a first-time screenwriter. Um, the When Nicole did this, he basically said, I want a writer in my contract where I will direct one scene of the movie, and if it's good, you'll let me direct the entire movie, and if not, you'll pay me like a kill fee, basically. So I'll get paid anyway. Apparently, the scene that he shot involved Gary Oldman playing Truman, who had just, wait for it, it gets even better. Gary Oldman playing Truman, who had just realized that he was in a dream world, that he was in this sort of imaginary TV world, picking up a baby and threatening to smash it unless his unless the baby's mother admitted that she was an actor. Um, yeah, it didn't quite work out entirely as they intended. Um, apparently Brian De Palma was also drafted at one point to direct. Oldman would do it too. <laughs> oh yeah. Is that, is that method? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very very different film but um obviously they didn't go that route they wanted to do it with brian de palma um although de palma apparently wanted to get even more kind of meta and more invested in brian it. de palma and gary oldman yeah very different truman show movie um uh, but apparently like nicole's original draft of the script uh was set in an alternate universe version of new york um, where of course Tr- yes of course Truman was uh, an assurance Gary Gary Oldman is a crooked cop who <laughs> um, has taken so much cocaine that he believes he's on a reality television show and threatens children yeah. um, but yes why does this premise sound like it also belongs on the 250 I wonder um, but yeah the, Nicole's original script was set in New York and it was apparently much 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 darker and much 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 more cynical um, in terms of you know there's this, there was apparently a sequence in the script where where Truman witnesses a sexual assault and doesn't intervene, uh, to pick an example. He's cheating on his wife with a prostitute, and he thinks it's a secret, but obviously everybody knows because they're watching on television. Um, and what happened is Weir kind of took a look at the script, and he said, yep, that's not going to work at all. And basically sat down with Nicole and basically moved it and kind of made it a lot brighter, made it a lot more optimistic, made it a lot more wholesome. So took the other bits and made Connecticut New York. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, because it, does, it yeah. does sound vaguely like that. And it's interesting because I think that the, you look at what the film almost was. And in fact, actually, it's it's been described as a, a film that was a mess during production and during development as well. Um, Dennis Hopper was famously cast as Kristoff. He was fired uh, pretty quickly. Um, he couldn't, because he couldn't he remember couldn't... his lines, could he? <laughs> yeah, he couldn't remember his lines. Um, so apparently Peter Weir suggested that what would happen is well they couldn't find a Kristoff 
So I'll step in, I'll play Kristoff, and it'll be very meta because I'm the director and I'll be playing the director in the movie. Apparently the producer Scott Rudin said, if you do that, I'm not financing the movie. And that was the end of that idea. Um, they also suggested... I'm the owner of this studio. <laughs> but they also suggested Alan Arkin before eventually settling on Ed Harris. Some of Ed Harris's original ideas for Kristoff were that he would have a hunchback. Um, he apparently had to be talked out of that idea. Um, but yeah, and apparently like the, Jim Carrey almost drowned while they were shooting that final scene because of the wool that he was wearing when he was on the boat. He got knocked overboard. Uh, the wool, which is very heavy when it's wet, almost sank to the bottom of the tank in which they were shooting. And the divers who were there for health and safety assumed that he was just acting really well uh, when he pretended to be drowning. They didn't realize until it was too late. By the time that the finished cut of the movie was released to Paramount... Um, the Paramount executives were apparently horrified by it. They said, look, it's not rare for the first cut of a movie to be bad. It is rare for the first cut of a movie to be as bad as the cut that we've just watched. And apparently a lot of stuff was kind of taken out. In fact, you can see that on the deleted scenes, the DVD. And what's remarkable is that despite all of that chaos, all the kind of insanity that was happening around it, it turned out to be actually quite brilliant. It's You look at the film now and you can't imagine a, situa a scenario. It looks so well-oiled. It looks like it's so perfectly put together. Everything lines up so perfectly that you almost can't imagine this, that it could have existed in any other form at any other point in its development. But yeah, back, back to the point there about what you're saying in terms of kind of that 90s anxiety or that sense of feeling trapped, because it is, it's a very primal thing. And one of the things that I really like about The Truman Show, and we'll probably talk a little bit about stuff like, say, reality television, and we'll probably talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the, the specific themes in the context of 98 and, you know, kind of going forward. But it is, it's a very primal story. I think it's a story that resonates with absolutely everybody. Like, it's a story that I think every kid or every teenager has kind of felt or kind of empathized with which is this idea that you you're meant for something different or something more or the place where you're at isn't the place where you're meant to be and there's kind of a wonderful and you're to the film in that way. and you're running out of time to do it as well because you're under pressure to kind of like keep what you've already got and to and to move on to the next thing which is like having children yeah, and I, I think that I think that by placing it, I think, I think it says what one hundred one thousand and ninety days, which is, ends up being twenty nine point eight years old. So he's approaching his thirties. So I think that mm. that's um, you know uh, an interesting try, um, thing that he can have look back at what his life has been and what his life is going to be in the future. I mean, the talk about the the kids, you know, she that the grandparent wants kids, and and that's kind of the next step in the evolution. Um, for the character and for and for you know any kind of nuclear family, but you know it's it's that 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 turning point, and it's he's not where he wants to be, which is really interesting to me. It's it, it, it's because the kind of midlife crisis um, it it starts around then. It's all about you having spent your life up to that point developing expectations. And then either either finding that your life isn't meeting those expectations or that it is exactly meeting the expectations that you had set and you're not uh, you're not happy kind of about it. So it, it, it's kind of either way. Yeah. It's the interesting and interesting thing about a midlife crisis is that you actually get to a point after that where you've you, where your expectations have lowered so much because um, because of your um, where where life actually starts to get better, but your expectations have lowered. 
So they like those. Those are the kind of golden years, apparently, when you're like kind of fifty-five, <laughs> and and you've 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 given up on life, and then it starts getting great. Um, it's like every yeah. day that you draw breath is more than you expect, basically. Um, yeah, <laughs> surpassing expectations. It would be a less interesting movie. <laughs> yes. Well, one of the things that I actually quite find quite interesting uh, about the film, ignoring well, actually the the kind of climax of the film because because Kurt mentioned this with regard to the structure the structure of the film is very clearly defined and I think that's quite important because I think that like you know nowadays we look at the Truman Show and we go well that's clearly reality television it's not that far outside our frame of reference you know we live in a world where people are putting themselves online on Twitter on Instagram on TikTok and all the stuff that cool kids like us know about um, but you know basically <laughs> we're, we're familiar with the concept of cameras watching you all the time basically um, but like in 1998 are we going to put this podcast are we going to assemble it like um we i don't know actually is it isn't that what we've done we've assembled a whole lot of tiktoks and put them together and recorded the audio um but it was it was, it was a nightmare apparently there wasn't it uh, editing was was a was a structural disaster but yeah no but yeah like I think the movie's like structure is very straightforward for a reason, because in 1998, when you're introducing people to a concept that, you know, we now accept as just the way things are, it was kind of bold and radical. Obviously, shows like, for example, Taxi Cab Confessions on HBO, Cops, and even MTV's The Real World all existed at the time this film was made. But reality television didn't really go mainstream until you had, I think, Survivor around about 2000. Kurt mentioned Big Brother, which launched in the Netherlands the year after, and then in, in uh, America in 2000, 2001. So, like, in 1998, this was all new. And so the linear structure of the film makes sense in terms of explaining that to the audience. But one of the things that I really like about it is at the very end of the story, in the third act, it strips all of that away. And it becomes this very simple, very straightforward, very linear narrative, which is it's about a man who is trying to escape the life that he has. And he does that by literally sailing out towards the horizon, which is this wonderful, very simple, very basic image. And it's something that Nicole comes back to. He, he uses the same image in Gattaca, you'll notice as well, because Gattaca has the same central kind of metaphor running through it. The sequence with the swimming, the two brothers who are swimming. And Ethan Hawke explains, like, the reason why he won in the end was because he didn't save anything for the swim back. He just kept going until he could go no more. And there's something very... Yeah, because where is... Where is Truman going? Yeah, just away. <laughs> like, he's not going to get to Fiji like that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you look, if you think of it as a scale thing, right? Look at Mount Rushmore. Look at how small Mount Rushmore is. Logically, he might be able to get to Fiji that way. It's how it's how Christopher Columbus discovered that the world was flat uh, by kind of sailing in one direction and bumping into the other end, coming back and telling lies <laughs> because he was um, too embarrassed by what happened. Um, but I think, yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, but it, it's a very primal sort of thing. And again, it's something that resonates kind of on an instinctive level. And you have that sequence where, like, in order to stop him, Christoph turns on the storm and he turns up the rain and the wind and he says, he'll turn around, he'll be too scared. And the idea is that Truman perseveres. Right. And he doesn't persevere because he's a, you know, he's a chosen one or it's his destiny or anything like that. He perseveres because he simply sticks to where he's going. He he endures, basically. And I find something, that's always been something I found very heartening about the Truman Show and about its ending. Is that, like, for all the stuff that happens beforehand, for all the clever stuff, and it's really, it is really clever, to be absolutely clear, but all the stuff that goes on with kind of, you know, reality and, and the question of who we are, the nature of existence, the the whole story essentially boils down to 
if Truman keeps going, if he keeps pressing forward, if he pushes himself and he doesn't give up in the face of like this incredible adversity and almost dying, he will persevere, he will triumph, he will reach something close to an answer that he's looking for. And I always found that very well, affecting on a primal level. He's also he's also kind of reaching a question because the 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 what 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 the movie ends with is the Philip Glass piece from from the beginning. Uh, well, it's it's very similar to the to the beginning of uh, Mishima, is which is which is called opening. Um, and yeah, it, like I think both pieces of, of music are called opening. Um, and they're just kind of subtly different, but it, it's the start of 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 his story. And I don't know, Darren, if 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 you thought of 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 that uh, door as a vagina, you've 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 spoken <laughs> previously about things being Freudian. Uh, is he being is he being well, boring lo- lo- there? Lo- 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 <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was going to go down Laura's. I mean, is that what we're talking about? But then you went, you went a completely different way to what I was thinking. Uh, symbolic birth canal. Yeah, the, the doorway is a symbolic birth canal, I think is what Andrew's getting okay, at here. Right. Um, but it is, well, it, again, that, that's all that stuff that we kind of, you know, you, you sort of mentioned, alluded to. It's Plato's cave. It's the silhouette on the wall. You know, it's that sort of stuff. It's the notion of kind of like, you know, is he finally entering the real world? And one of the things I actually think that, really stands to the film uh, and I think is to the film's credit and gives it a great deal of depth and nuance is that it's exactly what Andrew said. It's not that you reach an answer, it's that you reach a question. The film makes the point repeatedly that like the characters outside the Truman Show, the characters in inverted commas, the real world, are just as disconnected or just as disaffected as Truman is. Like you have all those shots of people and you have Christoph talking about how they'll leave him on all night so that they don't feel like they're alone. And even Christoph himself watches Truman sleep and kind of touches him through the screen. And there's a sense that like what Truman feels, even though it's very particular to the situation of being an accidental reality TV star, is a very fundamental part of the human existence. The people sitting in bathtubs, Hell, the people standing in crowded bars looking at the screens and trying to connect with him are just as disaffected, just as lost, just as disconnected as he is. And I think that's very clever because the film doesn't posit a solution to Truman's, you know, problem. It doesn't offer something similar to say, and I love The Matrix to be absolutely clear, but it doesn't do something like The Matrix says where it's like, oh, Neo's the one. That's it. That's that's the problem solved. It kind of says, no, no, what actually happens now is he goes out and has to discover himself. Yeah, well, I think the aspiration, and you mentioned about the, the people in the bar and the, the car park attendants and, and the like, who I, who I suddenly realised was Scully from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I completely forgot that was him. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, yeah, that's who it was. But um, is that it's almost like both both the in the real world and this reality world where they're aspiring to that question, but but also the fact that people are leaving him, leaving him on overnight and having this affection for him and aspiring to be in his world. It's almost like they they are they are meeting in the middle. So both both stories are kind of meeting in the middle because, you know, we finish the story and then they say, you know, what what, what should we watch now? What should we do now? They need to get on with their lives. And that's what both, both yeah. ends of the story are both saying that. And again, not to be too heavy handed with the symbolism, it's notable that like Truman walks up the stairs to walk through a door and you see Sylvia running downstairs to walk through a door. And the hope being obviously that maybe the two of them will be reunited. Now, of course, you wonder what they'll actually talk about, given that they only spent a couple of hours together when they were teenagers. But, you know, it's, it's a very nice kind of romantic, a very evocative, powerful image. And I think it works really well. And again, I think all of that stuff is... 
like before you get into like the stuff about nostalgia before you get into the stuff about reality television on like a primal fundamental like human condition kind of storytelling sort of way it it is that it's that high concept you described it's like it's a, a an almost science fiction way of exploring something that i think everybody has felt or maybe just me but i think a lot of people yeah. have felt it, it, it that's absolutely what it is and it, it, it like even 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 though it's 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 kind of uh, reasonably prescient yeah it it, it, it um yeah it's it is it is that um that science fiction kind of mechanism and it, it's um i love i love the <laughs> i love the conversation with marlon by the way like marlon is the star of um the truman, the, show. The truman show yeah yeah he's great he's terrific like yeah. like um i feel i feel like there's probably a lot of people watch it to, to, to keep see up marlon i love the way he just kind of arrives <laughs> with beer like all the time <laughs> but um i, I love the, the conversation they have where, where he says uh do you feel like you're don't don't you feel like your life is going somewhere? And he's like, no. <laughs> You're a desktop. Just like straight out, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd kill to have a desk job. And again, even yeah. little things like people say that to me all the time. Even like little things like Kristoff uh, feeding him the line, and he changes a key word in it. It's like, damn it, Marlon, he's flexing his creative muscle on this. Um, <laughs> by the way, fun fact, yeah. and you probably you probably picked up on this, but it's it's really interesting is that all of the cast, all the players, have names that are taken from famous movie stars. You know, so obviously Meryl Streep, for example, uh, Marlon Brando. But even like if you look at things around the, the way in which Sea Haven's laid out, you've got Lancaster Square named for Burt Lancaster. You've got Stewart Drive named for Jimmy Stewart and stuff like that, which is kind of, uh, again, a nice little... Yeah, geomatic corner. Um, <laughs> that's where all the homeless people are. Well, well, um, all the geomatic... Yeah. <laughs> all, all the stars are out. <laughs> They wrote Paul Giamatti exclamation marks when he appeared, which is great. Um, <laughs> but um, actually, yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about this then, just in terms of the, the film kind of, and it's, let's let's talk about the nostalgia then, for example, because this is kind of interesting. I think Kirk kind of alluded to it before mm. the spoiler zone, the kind of 50s-ness of it, the kind of like the sense of kind of nostalgia that runs through it. It was, uh, Sea Haven is the name of the town. It was shot at Seaside in Florida, which was a planned community that was part of new urbanism, was the movement. It was designed to get people out of their cars, to encourage people to walk, and to live in close proximity to one another. And apparently the residents were um, quite uncomfortable uh, with the way in which the film kind of portrayed them. Although it is notable that the two founders of the community can actually be seen in that wonderful sequence, you know, the anthem sequence, the sequence where Truman realizes that his world is fake when he stumbles on the radio broadcast, for example, and then kind of everybody stops. When he wanders across the road, sits down at the bench, and he notices the old men who are like drinking tea and talking in Spanish. Uh, but there's a couple looking at plans across the way. That, those are the actual founders of the real life seaside, which is the, the community that stood in for Sea Haven as well. And um, it's kind of interesting that like this existed at a point where you had a bit of kind of 50s nostalgia kind of simmering in American culture. So you had like Pleasantville came out the following year as well, which is a similar concept. It's about the intrusion of the real world into a leave it to beaver type situation. Is it, is it that you is it that people are worried that the 20th century is about to end and then you won't be able to get it back anymore? <laughs> Like they, they, yeah, they they, they, uh, they have yeah. 20th century boy is the is the kind of the the uh, 50s song um, uh, that they play, 
Um, what are, is, it, is there any kind of Y2K anxiety? This is a very Darren thing to say. <laughs> I'm not sure I feel comfortable <laughs> on this terrain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Taking that role on the podcast. Uh, but, but I mean, there absolutely is. Like, again, the film is kind of steeped in this 50s stuff. Like, even the sequence where he, the, nuclear, the nuclear power plant has yeah. a fire and he ends up being chased through the forest by these men in sort of, like, E.T. costumes. In sort of, like, again, the day the Earth stood still type costumes as well. The fact that Truman's favorite show, like, uh, still, you know, so Meryl is like, uh, you know, and your favorite show is going to come on. And his favorite show is, well, after Leave it to Beaver, is Golden Oldies. Uh, why, why, don't, why don't they use kind of uh, television mechanisms more like why don't they tell him that it was all a dream like when he's being chased by the guys in in the kind of radioactive suits because there's a one point where he's like how do you explain the 20 22 years absence of his father <laughs> he's like amnesia <laughs> it's like brilliant Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I suppose that I suppose that falls in with, with the he's he's used to his surroundings, isn't he? He doesn't he, he doesn't know any different. So these things are just said to him. We're putting our own perspective on what he believes or he's known to believe, um, and he he's got no reason to suspect that. Uh, right. Obviously, we he's starting to, isn't he? But um, you know, his his whole makeup of the past thirty years hasn't been that. It's been. I believe everything. Everything is is fun is fantastic, and I believe everyone. It's almost like you know the invention of lying. No one, no one's really telling him a lie, but they are actually all telling him a lie. That's yeah. That's that's what Christoph says, isn't it? We 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 accept the reality of the world. You know that 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 we're um, we don't uh, we don't question things, and that comes down to kind of that it it's more um, and it's a it's a it's so it's so profound in this movie because you're 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 kind of questioning um so much of um of what the world um is or or should be i guess Christoph is absolutely fascinating as a character because it's as much as this world is built for Truman, it's also built by Christoph, and there's a sense of Christoph building it to his specifications. He's very literally God in this situation. And I mean, that's, that's very <laughs> yeah. obvious in the closing scene where he literally talks to Truman through the sun. Um, you know, and like, again, cue the sun is one of my favorite lines in movie history because it's such a wonderfully weird, surrealist statement. But the idea is that Christoph has built this world as much for himself as for Truman. That he, again, you have the sense of nostalgia, the sense of wanting to yearning to get back to stuff. Because like the moment where Sylvia calls up the the talk show, calls up the the true talk, and kind of lays into him, he's like, "No, your world is the world that's broken. My world is perfect. My world is a world where everybody knows your name. Yeah, where you don't. You probably don't have to lock your door at night. Where you know nobody lies or betrays or schemes or plots. My world is kind of idealized, he, and it kind of he, it's interesting to see that. There. Yeah, he really he sees himself as this kind of benign dictator." Or like a perfect god, or Walt Disney building Epcot. That's created like the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's he says kind of Truman prefers his cell. He wants to bet on us. But it, I mean, it, 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 it's it's also Chris. It's also Christoph's own cell, though, isn't it? Because he can't escape the thing that he's built himself. He, he's he's making it all for himself, and he's quite a selfish person in that way. Absolutely. And he lives there. Like, it's very clear that he doesn't go home. He doesn't have a life off the lot or whatever. Like, there's that sequence where Truman's sleeping and Kristoff has clearly come out of the shower or out of the gym with the towel wrapped around his shoulders and touches the screen because he doesn't have a life outside of bringing this to life. 
Like his life doesn't exist outside of the project that is the Truman Show. And it's very much kind of sculpted in his own image. And I think that's kind of interesting to look at in terms of kind of nostalgia and maybe seeing that as a kind of a criticism of it. Because again, obviously, you know, in, in American culture, there is this kind of pull of the the fantasy of going back to the, the 50s, and particularly in the context of the 90s, where you had this reaction against 60s radicalism with stuff like, say, Forrest Gump, which is very much like, well, if you took part in that revolution, you probably deserve to have a disease that's going to kill you. Um, and that sort of attitude that kind of permeates it, which is really deeply unpleasant. And it's kind of interesting to see again, in movies like Pleasantville and like this one, a sense of kind of interrogating the romance of the 50s that exists in American culture, the idea that the 50s were a better time. Because you have like things like, and again, really clever, really subtle touch that I really like is the Wait way a second, Darren, makes the fact... Lieutenant Dan didn't get AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't, he didn't partake in the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> The true love interest in the film didn't get AIDS. No, you're right. Um, <laughs> Faris, one true love did not get AIDS. You're entirely correct. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, I mean, what I really like to say that, you know, the 50s idea of everybody knowing your name and that being something that people like and aspire towards. And I really like that the Truman Show makes that uncanny. Yeah. Like, it's really Upsetting. creepy that everybody knows Truman's name. And it's really uncomfortable. Like, there's a really great moment where when they get to the nuclear, that the supposedly fire at the nuclear plant. And he's like, well, thank you, officer. And he's like, no, thank you, Truman. And then he's like, wait, what? Uh, which is great. Um, and it, kind of, it, it makes all that stuff wonderfully creepy. And it, it, again, this is one of the things where it's a beautiful film. That sequence where Truman realizes, and it's that music from, um, is it Powaskatsi? Uh, I think it's what it's called, which is the second in Godfrey Origgio's uh, documentary trilogy with Koinaskatsi, but it's Anthem Part 2 is the music cue. It's a sequence where Truman stumbles upon the radio that's like broadcasting his actions as they're happening. That sequence is fantastic because it, it's beautifully lit, it's got all these white picket fences. It's got these people in business suits. It's kind of this romantic, idealized kind of 1950s American small town. But it becomes kind of almost like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Because you get those wonderful shots of them all freezing in place. But with the lighting that gives them long shadows. You have the Dutch angles on Truman's face as he wanders. You have these intense, uncomfortable close-ups. You have Truman standing in the shadows in these shots. Which are just really, really uncomfortable. And it kind of does this thing of like, not making it dark and unpleasant but somehow making it creepier because it's so well lit and so kind of almost what you would expect the 50s to look like it it doesn't render it alien it just renders it really really creepy and i really like that aspect of the film yeah the, the, the there's a scene part of that scene as well as where he's hiding behind the lamppost and he don't he don't see his full face and he, he sort of comes back but what i particularly like about that scene is the it's almost like um it's his sudden realization when he when he walks in uh, when he gets almost run over by the bus, but it's almost like a a superhero movie at that point. He's realizing he's got power, and it's kind of like the power of like I've real I've I've suddenly woken up from this dream, you know. Oh, he's waking up from the dream and he's realizing he can actually have an effect on things. Where you know, and, and that, as I say, it's that realization of like if I run over here, then they can't keep up with me. What you know, and then uh, as as you get into the uh, the oven scene with the. Uh, with your best mate, <laughs> with the beers, but um, the, you know he, he talks. He talks to him then, and obviously he does that clapping thing, and and he, he realizes he's he actually has something now, and uh, 
you know, something that is that is wake woken him up because he's he's alive, he's completely alive at that point. Well, that's interesting because one of the interesting arguments that's been made about Jim Carrey's filmography, if you were to distill it down to a single idea, I think he call he calls it the law of attraction. Is the idea basically the idea of willing yourself into existence? And what's interesting, you know, famous like Bruce Almighty. That's it exactly. There's so much of apparently um like Carrey's filmography that hinges on this idea that the moment that you realize you control reality, you are no longer a slave to reality. So like Yes Man, for example, which is premised on the idea that if you just keep saying yes to things, good things will happen to you over the course of that. Or Liar Liar, which is if you just keep telling the truth or telling it as it is, eventually good things will happen to you. Or Bruce Almighty, where it's like literally like you are God. And there's a sense of that even here, where Truman is the most important person in the world, and he kind of comes to that realization along the way. And again, he kind of wills himself out of it's that it's that stuff that I guess I was talking about there, which is the idea of like perseverance. But Truman wills his way out of there. He kind of does it. If you if if you really want to be a pet detective, you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, in spite of the fact that it's not a job that just lend me your ears, and we'll be fine. <laughs> just. Yeah, just write write yourself a check for one million dollars and, and cash it a year yeah. later. Exactly, when you're a successful pet detective. Um, but yeah, no, because heard a mask. Yeah, I guess as well. well yeah. This this feels very much like there's been a YouTube um, kind of uh, video essay about. It. Um, there's actually a Grant um, piece that I think I'll be slotting in the show notes, which basically argues that yes, ah, the beauty of, of kind of like the the single unifying theory of Jim Carrey's cinema, basically, um, and yeah, it, it points to that sequence in the Truman Show as an example of it, which is the moment at which Truman realizes he can stop traffic and that everybody is watching him and he's the center of attention and that sort of thing, and that's very much kind of like a Jim Carrey moment. And again, it's kind of interesting because it is Andrew mentioned Frank Capra. And it, it's very much, it feels like that. Again, it feels almost like a kind of a Jimmy Stewart character to a certain extent, where he's kind of this beaten, put-upon guy. You have the sequence where he's going through his regular day, for example, and he can't get in the revolving door because he just stops letting everybody else go in before him. Or the fact that the two twins, who are initially portrayed, you know, in character as the nicest, most cheerful people on the earth, still continually press him against a wall with that wonderful framing so that you can see the product placement in it as well. Um, one of the things that I really, really like about the film is its use of camera uh, its use of angles and its use of kind of storytelling because obviously you have the the vignetting around the corner of the screens so the little black kind of shades the kind of fish eyes or that give you a sense that you're watching the show through the perspective of a camera that's in position. But even when it's not doing that, uh, what I really like is that Weir tends to put the camera in positions that suggest hidden cameras. So like, for example, when he's in the insurance office, you'll notice that like people are shot from low angles as if they're being shot from objects on his desk, which is kind of interesting. And there's this constant use of low angle throughout, which gives you this kind of intense close-up, which makes you feel voyeuristic much more than film. It continually draws attention to it. And even in that sequence, that anthem, sequence the moment where he kind of he goes in the revolving door and he goes around twice and he comes out you have the camera that's watching him that we're watching him through kind of move and then focus and then zoom as if it's looking for him as well and it kind of makes it feel like you as an audience member are watching the truman show and again even the introduction because the opening credits don't give you a peter weir film they give you starring truman burbank as himself uh, which is kind of it's I really like that aspect of the film because even though it's not as heavy handed as it might be, even if it's not as kind of, you know, entirely 100 percent shot 
through the perspective of kind of like, you know, the, the cameras on the set. Even when it's not, it's constantly reminding you that you are watching this, that you are kind of, this is a film almost, or this is a film that's imitating a TV show. And I kind of really like that aspect of it. Well, it might be just be the technical person in me that you you, spoke, you speak about that camera moving and, and looking for him and fine zoom. In my head, it's we're not particularly seeing the... It happens a lot through the film for me. It happens where it's like you're viewing the cameraman and you're seeing the wall of wall of video the video wall and you're the director you're going right that camera camera two camera three you know and, and looking for you know that's yeah. what it feels like to me and there's a lot of elements in there and one thing that stood out for me on this watch when i was watching it was you mentioned about some of the dutch angles there which are obviously not they're not in universe um filming it's obvious they're not because for example he might walk out his house and there's no physical way the camera could be a hidden camera. It's just us watching that as a movie, and then it will flick to one of the fish eyes, and then you 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 zoom into that. And he, he uses that a lot during the edit, a lot of times where it makes you feel like you're jumping from you know your angle of unit, then straight into actually watching the show itself. And that's what I felt from it, especially from a director's point of view. And like Christoph even draws attention to it with the music, with the Marlin father reunification sequence, where you have like you have Philip Glass himself, by the way, standing down a little synthesizer at the bottom of the set, being told, "Okay, and now turn the music up as the music rises on the soundtrack that you're watching." Even though you're watching kind of Christoph at that moment, it's still very much like a film that makes you aware of it being a film, yeah. which I think is very and, clever and, and very was, interesting. And that was another another thing with that, as, you, as I was mentioning there as well, which is good that you brought that up, was when some of the music cues come in, so when the action starts to develop and you start getting tighter um, edits and, and things are starting to pulsate a little bit, that the music changes, but it, it's almost as like you feel like... <laughs> when you watch it like and you know what's happening... Is that the music that's playing for you, the viewer, or is it the music that's playing for them, the people watching the Truman Show? And it's really meta that way. Uh, yeah, I think I think it is meant to be them because, uh, like, when when he when he goes missing, we're not we're not escaping with him. We're looking for him too. Like like we 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 can't find where he is until they find yeah. him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it it is it yeah, it's definitely. Very meta, but uh, but also that it also makes me think think as well. During this is what way my brain my brain works is that I, I'm whenever I watch this now it runs through my head about what are they doing behind the scenes? What are they? You know, they're playing the music, at, you know, and he's been so, um, you know, he's trying to avoid everything and he's you know trying to avoid the camera and they're zooming in trying to find him, but at the same time going, oh, we'll just carry on playing this music. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, just like we'll keep until somebody tells me to cut. You know, it's, it's really, really strange from that point of view. One of the things that I really like about it is that apparently Peter Weir had like he wrote up a little booklet. Basically, um, he wrote up several booklets. One of which he convinced Jim Carrey to sign on with, um, and Jim Carrey apparently still keeps it. Apparently, there are lots of retrospects of the Truman Show where they'll say Jim paused the conversation to run off and pick up this book that Peter Weir had made for him like twenty years ago. And basically, like, this was a selection of paintings and Edward Hopper art and kind of newspaper clippings. It was basically, like, the mood that he wanted to go with the film. But apparently Weir actually wrote a little guidebook in-universe for himself.
himself for making the film. And he kind of cast himself, he imagined himself as a mid-tier director working on the early morning shift on the show, right. uh, which was not one of the prime time slots. So it was very much he was a day player and he kind of be in character directing the film like that. He said that, you know, there were six shifts in a day and, you know, midnight to 4 a.m. was your learner's position. But the directors who directed weekends had to be very experienced because at that time, Truman, Truman might do something unpredictable. Um, which is kind of interesting uh, and kind of it, it's a kind of wonderful meta self-awareness to it he also convinced paramount to shoot special features in that style as well which was unheard of and paramount themselves actually got in on it wholeheartedly and they actually had freetruman.com registered which is basically a campaign to free truman burbank uh, which would basically was written from the perspective of somebody in the universe of the show somebody very similar to sylvia say you know ringing up and you know how's it going to end with the button sticker but like spreading this around the internet and kind of having people go wait what the, what the hell is this how is this a commercial for what's going to be a jim carrey blockbuster in 1998 and i kind of adore that i think there's something very kind of clever and very nasty very young and very kind of fresh and doing something like that Picking in the context of a Paramount Pictures film starring Jim Carrey in 1998. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I think, and that would—it's something that I've probably I've not seen, but it would be something that you know a few years later would be quite commonplace, especially around the Matrix time. You know, um, around the, I'd say the second movie of the Matrix Reloaded. I think that that that's when it started to really kick into high gear, wasn't it? Oh, when you get the augmented stuff, the yeah. Animatrix stuff. The Animatrix stuff, stuff the well. game. Uh, Lost did it as well in round 2004 with the games and, you know, external, the augmented reality games and things. So it was only, it was maybe ahead of its curve in its thoughts there, but obviously just not quite there with it. Oh, and by the way, Andrew will appreciate this. The The name of the corporation that legally adopted Truman is Omnicam. Oh, yeah. Omnicam. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, um... I once worked, did catering for MTV, uh, they own Viacom, and they're very nice people, but really kind of upsetting, <laughs> <laughs> like being, 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 being kind of in the orbit of that sort of re reality t TV kind of behemoth. Um, yeah, the... Um, they, it's um, they, they, yeah. They they should be called something like 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 Unicam. Definitely not MTV anyway. But um, yeah, you could imagine that MTV would be the people making this. It's funny as well, though, how how upsetting that little detail is. That they're they 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 um, he's the first baby to be legally adopted by a corporation. You imagine this like. So corporations can do that now. Yeah. But yeah. what's what's really upsetting, and again, it's yeah. very it's that RoboCop aspect of satire of it. What's particularly yeah. upsetting is the way the film plays this as just a fact of life now. It's not horrendous in the world of the yeah. film, which somehow makes isn't it that, more horrendous. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. The first time it's happened. But of course, that was 30 years ago. You, you, probably, so, you probably don't remember a time yeah. when corporations weren't adopting babies. But you, thankfully, Christoph yeah. was way ahead of you. We have the pioneer here. It used, to, yeah, it, it used to be that, that having a child was an expensive proposition. But now it's, it's, it's become so lucrative. Um, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can just give it away to a company. Um, yeah. And the, 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 the other kind of... Um, upsetting like like it's the most um kind of upsetting details in though in in that interview it's him kind of explaining how um he had this great idea of killing his father as well yeah 
Well, he presents, again, this is the thing where it's very abstract kind of concepts, like a story problem. So, I mean, logically, the only way to solve this problem was to, you know, kill off the father. It's so barbaric. Yeah. It's like, that was a moment of my true genius. Thank you very much. Um, but then he goes, he go, but he goes one step further, doesn't he? Because he says, I'm still um, adamant on getting the first conceived child on on live television as well. I mean, that goes even one step further. I mean, does that mean that the corporation owned the child as well as him? You know, it's, it, it, it takes it that one step further. And, and, and that's quite scary to think of. And... Meryl as well. Yeah, and and what? Yeah, questions of like consent with her and Truman as well. Yeah, because yeah, that's ne- n- yeah never questions that does it at all um, throughout the movie whatsoever. Yeah, and again everybody's all smiling, and and again because it because you're seeing it through that sort of like RoboCop lens of promotional video where you have like you know oh it's the Truman Show isn't a TV show it's a lifestyle sort of thing that you have people saying which is you know obviously terrifying and nonsense but when you realize that like somebody like Meryl. Um, has basically agreed to sign on to prostitute herself and to sell the baby that she has, presumably to this corporation so they can continue raising it. Uh, It's really, really dark and really, really creepy. And I kind of love that the film is able to do that while still being a PG-13 film, while still being a film that is appropriate for children, and while never seeming like, you know, sort of indulgently dark, if that makes sense, or kind of like never seems like it wallows in its darkness. And that's a very interesting line for a film like that to walk, I think. Yeah, I, I think through, throughout the uh, the show as well, it does a really good job of that. I mean, some of the psychological manipulation that happens throughout the film as well, um, which really kind of tries to re- reintroduce his fear and uh, to avoid him escaping and things like that. And just little things throughout the whole of his life that the these psychological manipulations have happened just to keep him keep him at, um, you know within the confines of of the actual um, show itself, which is quite scary, really. And, and a real lack of choice as well in in his like like the kind of stating how um oh but your father was an only child just like you can imagine and and that kind of that being that being a a decision that a company takes is like whether you're going to have any brothers or sisters or not um it's just so um, <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 crazy. But the yeah the 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 way the 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 way they tonally kind of um um uh, just kind of keep on going and don't kind of um uh, dwell on those points. The 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 amount of darkness kind of that's that's in it without 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 it being a um, that kind of movie at all. And it it, it getting to kind of have its cake and eat it, I guess. Which is, again, remarkable. It's notable that Weir apparently had 14 months of prep time on this, which was unprecedented, because apparently when Kerry signed on, he signed on for $12 million, which was down from his uh, requested fee of $20 million. Um, So he took a massive pay cut to to do this movie. Um, He did, although, make more points off the back end, because the lower that your your initial um, payment is, the quicker that your points off the back end kick in. Uh, But apparently, yeah, he was... Because Kerry was signed on to do movies like Liar Liar... um, the studio said, no, no, we're going to wait for him. So apparently Weir had like 14 months to do all the stuff that he wanted to do in terms of getting the script properly finished, scouting locations and kind of like layering it and constructing it in the way that he wanted to, which I think really shows off. It's a really, really well-produced film. And it's, um, the director is an Antipodean as well. He is, he's from Australia. Yeah. And he, he compared casting Kerry in this to uh, working with Robin Williams on um, Dead Poets Society. 
which is another dead poet society yeah i was just thinking that that kind of um how how much kind of um uh yeah that he had that sort of history already of not that robin williams was a um i think i think it was beyond jim carrey kind of at that point in his career where he'd already demonstrated that he that he could bring um a lot of pathos to to um, to his roles. Like he'd done stuff like Awakenings, didn't it? Didn't didn't he start off as an actor as well, like coming from Juilliard or something like that? Um, uh, Robin um, Robin Williams. I'm, Whereas I think Jim Carrey might have started as a um, stand-up, yeah, as a stand-up, yeah. At seventeen, he was apparently one of the best known. Yeah, he was apparently one of the best known comedians on the circuit at the age of seventeen. Uh, which is quite impressive. You know, Truman has nothing to worry about. In the about. Canadian circuit. <laughs> All right, then. Shots fired. No <laughs> LA improv for you, Mr. Carey, apparently. Um, no, which um, uh, I think Mike Myers probably. I, I think he's also Canadian, isn't he? Yes. Norm MacDonald. There's a, 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 lot of, a lot of 90s Canadian um, uh, <laughs> comedians. So, yeah, yeah no, no slide against them. Um, in terms of kind of, this is probably actually an interesting way we talk about like the corporations and we talk about kind of cynicism, we talk about darkness, we talk about exploitation. Um, the movie's perhaps prescient or not so prescient handling of celebrity culture and perhaps even kind of reality television. Uh, because again, one of the things, you know, that the film gets a lot of credit for and deservedly so is for kind of predicting uh, reality television or at least the outline of it i don't think it gets the particulars right i think that one of the more interesting things and it's been pointed out in all the retrospectives by weir and by kerry is that like they didn't foresee that people would want to be on reality television that was their big that was the thing they got right. wrong they didn't think that people would run towards this kind of crazy situation they assumed that people would retreat from it uh, but what's interesting is that and again this is this is kind of a very esoteric note but i wonder if is True Talk the first example of a post-show? I was thinking the same thing, <laughs> yeah. The Talking Dead. Um, exactly, yeah. They they have a Game of Thrones one. I mean, they had a Game of Thrones one as well, I think. I think yeah. there's pretty much one they, on every they, TV show. They have podcasts now. Yeah. So tr- the Truman they Show... Have podcasts that are like brought out by the television studio. Like I think The Good Place has a podcast where each week they'll have people from... The good place, come on and um, and talk and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of love that, like the Truman Show just introduces that detail as a casual background exposition machine, and we've somehow incorporated that into the modern media landscape, uh, which is kind of hilarious. But more, more to the point, more is kind of getting at is this idea of exploitation and cynicism and reality television and stuff like that, because it does feel rather. Like it kind of it, watching it now, it feels like it taps into some of that stuff that you see around reality television, where you have this debate about how much reality television is actual reality, how much of it is edited, how much of it is storyboarded, how much of it is manipulated and guided. Um, Andrew, you are probably aware of the Joe Schmo show, I assume, are you? Ooh, no, I don't think I am. Um... This seems like it would be right up your street. It was a reality TV show that aired um, in 2001, I believe. And it was basically a spoof of reality television where they hired a bunch of comedians, including Kirsten Wig in her first big role, to play the archetypes from a reality TV show and then hired one real contestant 
and put him in the middle of it, basically, and filmed his reaction to thinking that he was on a reality television show with all of these improvising comedians. Um, and that kind of level of heightened on reality around it as well. But more generally, like, there are obviously debates about the ethics of, say, reality television, about how, when you're producing this content, how you deal with it. I mean, even recently, you've had kind of discussions about you know, what producers knew and when, when it came to what contestants have done on particular shows, how they've interacted with one another. Yeah, like, um, and the, the, uh, the, uh, like all of the kind of discussion around, you know, like Jade Goody, um, but even like simpler, simpler things, like the things people reveal, I believe, I, I haven't seen it, but there's a show on Netflix called, now called Love is Blind. Yes. And somebody said, um, I was listening to them talking about um, it kind of obliquely on a podcast, but somebody said, oh, my dog really likes wine. <laughs> she just revealed that she gives her dog wine. <laughs> like she was saying it like it was a funny thing. It's like, my 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 dog is so crazy. He, he really, really, really likes wine. And it's like, no, you're crazy. <laughs> you, just, you give your dog wine and you've just revealed it on television or Netflix. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, it's, it's a different, it's a totally different podcast to, to talk about this, but it's interesting that for, for me around that time, I was absolutely obsessed with the, um, the OJ Simpson trial. Uh, so I think the OJ Simpson trial was 1996, yeah. somewhere around there. And I was up to, God knows, three, four o'clock in the morning watching that. And then you've got, like, the... Obviously, this film comes out and has all those hallmarks of, like, you know, people going to bed with it and, you know, um, it's, it's fine comforting. And then not long after that, you get Big Brother, which is, you know, people just wanting to go into this house and how much of that is real. But then you get into really hyper-real, as you mentioned, like Geordie Shaw and, and all those programs that were... Are they scripted? Are they loosely scripted? Uh, you know, none of them I watch whatsoever. But the, but there's there's been that development over the course of um, the last twenty years from when this film was out to where we are now. Where you know, mm. like two or three years after that, it did have that kind of Truman feel to it. But then it quickly, it just exponentially changed um, into what we've got now, which is this hyper reality that we we're currently living in now. And especially the last few years with everything with the fake news aspect. Um, around the world, you know, to, and um, whatever you perceive to be your reality, which has completely changed things um, in t- totally where, you know, you look back at the Truman Show and it's a completely um, yeah. much more naive time. Yeah, I mean, this days you, these days you just let Truman kind of wander around freely. There wouldn't be a need to build yeah. a dome. Um, and again, like, that's the thing where you have, like, Twitter and iTunes, uh, Twitter and sort of, like, TikTok and everybody putting their lives online, everybody turning themselves into kind of a celebrity star. It is interesting that, like, psychiatrists have talked about the Truman Show delusion, uh, which has become increasingly common. I think it was first recorded around 2008, about 10 years after the film was released, where people have come to believe that they are the stars of their own reality TV shows just without realizing them. I think one prominent case involved somebody who worked behind the scenes on actual reality television, for example. But there was another person who was convinced that the 9-11 attacks were just an event in his reality television storyline. And so he traveled to New York in order to prove that they still existed. There was somebody else who believed that if they reached the top of the Empire State Building, they would get a check for a million dollars because they completed their reality television show. It's kind of interesting how this stuff has kind of permeated the kind of the, the zeitgeist and the psyche. And it's kind of been folded in and is now 
commonplace, but it, it kind of like we trace it back and we go the Truman Show, you know. And again, the Truman Show itself has arguably uh, been kind of you know people point to say the Jerry Springer Show, uh, which had a similar sort of thing where the Jerry Springer Show was kind of like this this pre reality television talk show where you bring people on and they make a fool of themselves. They do what Andrew said. They talk about you know they talk about things that you probably shouldn't talk about. Now it turns out most of them were actors, or at least some of them were actors. But you have to imagine some of them were real. And the question of are you exploiting these people on national television, pointing at them, mocking them, and laughing them? But I think even Kerry himself is. They definitely are kind of exploited on the Jerry Springer show, but that's their gig, you know. Like, like the, the, that that's 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 what they've what they've kind of discovered. What I I, I was I was in the audience for a Jerry Springer oh. show one time, and it was people who had previously been on the Jerry Springer show. Okay, coming back for more humiliation like and, and they're 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 on there because people can't believe that such um uh, garbage people exist um and you and you're 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 bringing you're bringing back to to exploit them further um and and they're and they're and they're there they're coming back because like the that's their kind of meal tickets um, which is really upsetting. Well, yeah, I mean, especially because of um, recent history where people have actually taken their own lives with with, with what's been happening, you know, within these shows and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's get, it's getting to a point. Jeremy Kyle. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah it's, it's really getting, you know, to. I think it's going. There's, there's definitely a critical point which we're going to be going to be hitting at some point in the near future with, with, with regards to how these shows are working. Um, I mean, Caroline Flack is another. I know she wasn't exactly a a reality star as such but she was on a reality show and, and the amount of attention everybody that she got, like official, yeah yeah, yeah this seems to be it yeah. seems to be we're approaching some sort of critical point well i mean even when the film was released like kerry was arguing that it was in some sense he felt an empathy with truman as somebody whose life was in that fishbowl as mm. somebody who was like approached everybody knew his name everybody expected him to be cheerful and happy everybody assumed that he had a perfect life but even say roger ebert uh discussing the film in his review uh pointed to lady diana as an example of this that diana sort of the moment that she became engaged to charles um, all of a sudden had herself flung into the spotlight and was cast as a protagonist in this sort of television show spectacle. And it's something that has always kind of been happening. And I think that one of the interesting things about the Truman Show is that it, like, it, even by the standards of what's happening to Truman is horrific, there's a strange benignness to it. Like, it, it almost feels like, and again, you have that sense of the people watching it, where there's a, this faith in humanity where people are watching Truman because he helps them get through stuff. You know, whether you're in the bath, whether you're falling asleep on the couch or whatever, like the idea is that you turn on Truman and you're reassured that everything is okay, as opposed to, you know, that sense that you talked about, where there's a sense of like wanting to demolish or destroy something or to point at something and laugh at something. It's kind of interesting that the way in which the Truman Show has arguably aged worse is its faith in humanity, which is kind of depressing in a way. Yeah. The oh, the gates of the... Uh, of. Um, is it, I can't remember if it's called Sea Haven or, or Safe Haven now. Um, is Omnis Pro Uno, which is one for all and all for one. That's on the on the gate as you enter the into the town, which I thought was an interesting comment. Um, you well, know. it is it is quite That's literally brilliant. all for one, yes, yeah, in yeah. a very literal sense. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's, 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 it's solipsistic. I think it was Bertrand Russell had a pupil. One time, who was a solipsist and told 
him that she was a solipsist and wanted to convince him as well of, of solipsism. And he couldn't understand. He was like, well, what does it matter if I... <laughs> If I believe that, that that you're the only person who exists or not, if I don't exist, then like, why does it matter? What relevance does it, it have? Worth yeah. Noting actually, just very very um, quickly, yeah. um, the film generated because it was a massive success because it garnered a great deal of attention. It was subject to a lot of scrutiny. Um, so there were a lot of lawsuits and allegations that it had plagiarized and copied various material. Uh, there were a number of lawsuits, including a playwright named Mark Dunn. Um, a writer named Maori who claimed that he'd written a similar script called The Crew in the 1980s. And Paul Bartel, who wrote The uh, Secret Camera in 1966, also claimed that it was kind of inspired by their works, kind of derived by their works. Uh, which is interesting, because again, you, you think of this as a kind of epoch-defining movie, but nothing kind of emerges entirely in a vacuum. But I think what makes this unique is finding a way to popularise it. It's finding a way to bring it to the mainstream. Didn't Shug Knight hold uh, Peter Weir by his legs outside the window of... Uh... No, sorry, that was Finley Lies. It's very easy to get um, the two confused. I, I yeah. readily can see that yeah. um, they are very, very similar to one another. Yeah. Um, just one other detail then before we wrap up, because I find this actually kind of sweet, uh, maybe a little bit. There's a village called Hojway in, in Denmark, which has been likened to Sea Haven in The Truman Show. Um, it is a village that is populated by a predominantly elder population and a staff that walk around and act like they're inhabitants of the village. It's a village where everybody has dementia or Alzheimer's. Um, it's basically a care community, but the residents don't know that they're in a care community. They just kind of wander around and continue to live their lives with kind of the staff kind of keeping an eye on them, pretending to be people in their day-to-day -day life. It's kind of interesting, kind of heartwarming. Apparently, the, the residents have a much healthier life than they would if they were in care homes. Uh, they tend to live longer as well, and they tend to have much more fulfilling kind of lives around them. It's kind of like, imagine a happy version of The Truman Show, where your children drop you off uh, in there. And that's kind of what, what uh, Hodgeway is like. It, has, it also has something like 5,000 cameras in it as well, <laughs> in order to help prevent accidents um, and to prevent any kind of... Do you, do you, aren't there any people in that community... Who, who have a moment where they realize that <laughs> lucidity oh, just hold on a is lucid yeah. oh hang on a second yeah. <laughs> and Philip Glass music starts playing over all the sound systems just as, as they wander through exactly um, you realize it's actually Philip Glass Philip Glass is like 82 now he looks amazing um yeah, he's still Even in this, he must be in his um, in his uh, uh, probably like late fifties or early sixties. He looks like a young man, yeah. uh, and he's still touring and he's still lecturing as well and stuff like that. And he kind of he like yeah. what's interesting is he had to be talked into it again. He's one of those um, artists who likes to know what he's licensing his work for. So apparently Peter Weir had to sit down and convince him to let him use that music uh, in the film, and it's it's great because it doesn't it like it's impossible to imagine the Truman Show working as well as it does without that Philip Glass music it seems so perfectly integrated into it and again Andrew since you brought up Philip Glass you may um quite like this um you know Koina Skatsi means life out of balance yes Power Skatsi which is the sequel from which that music comes means life in a state of transition um, and apparently that's, you know, that is thematically appropriate because that arrives at a moment in the film where Truman's own life is going through a state of transition, which I really, really liked as well. Ah. Um, all right, then, unless there's anything else you want to discuss, I think it's about time to wrap up. I think I'm good. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. So, Kurt, what we normally do at the end of the podcast. It's dinner time. We started in the morning. <laughs> Hugh, well, we just, I'll tell you, we just, yeah, damn it. Damn it. You got me ahead. It's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so before we wrap up what we normally do is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners so something you're enjoying at the moment something that you think is bringing people pleasure it might bring people pleasure especially at these harsh times it can be something related to the movie it can be something unrelated to the movie it can be a movie a film a book it can be an experience uh, it can be just sitting down and doing nothing it can be walking outside anything you want so i'm gonna give you a moment to think about that i'm gonna ask andrew to recommend uncut gems Yes, yeah. I'll recommend. I'll give me a moment to recommend Uncut Gems. Yeah, no, I, 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 I saw Uncut Gems, and and I liked it a lot. I, I, I was warned when watching it. It's kind of like, well, it, it felt like I was being warned that it was just going to be such an anxiety attack of of a movie. I feel like I probably could have watched it a lot sooner. Um, you, 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 if you're thinking about watching it but you're not sure you're ready just go ahead and do it okay you didn't um, find it claustrophobic uh, or anxious well not that much not as as much maybe 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 uh maybe i've ruined it now by by telling people that it's okay to see it maybe it's appropriate to be warned not to see the movie before you go see it um but um yeah, I guess. Um... No, it's, it's a delight. I really, really loved it. And what's interesting is, and you mentioned Adam Sandler as a point of comparison to Kerry. What I find interesting yes, about exactly. Sandler and, and Kerry is that like Sandler tends to do his experimentation outside of the spotlight. So he does like, he'll do Punch Drunk Love. Um, but like, you know, mm. they're not, Punch Drunk Love and Uncut Gems aren't going to be released in the middle of a summer with a big advertising campaign worth dozens of millions of dollars on a studio budget of 60 to 80 million dollars. They're released kind of quietly off season, characterized as awards fair. What I find interesting about Kerry is when Kerry does this kind of stuff, he does something like The Truman Show or even like Man on a Moon. Man on the Moon had a similar kind of thing around it where it was a big deal, where it was up front, where his, you know, he was selling it as come see it because it's a Jim Carrey movie, which I kind of appreciate about Carrey as an artist is that like when he's taking a swing like he does with The Truman Show and like he did with Man on the Moon, he kind of he goes all out. He doesn't kind of hide it in the margins. It isn't kind of like a, a footnote in his filmography. It's like, nope, this is what I'm well, doing it- now. It's, or the cable guy. Well, it, the, the reason Adam Sandler doesn't make a big deal of these movies is he's hoping people don't. He's hoping Kevin James doesn't find out <laughs> and muscle his way in. I kind of love the idea. <laughs> and Rob Schneider. No, no, he just feels like Kevin James would be really upset if he finds out that um, he he went off and did this movie without having all of his friends. In. Oh yeah, now I'm now imagining a version of I'm now recasting Uncut Gems with the Grown Ups Gang in my head, and I'm kind of imagining Rob Schneider <laughs> or Dave. You could totally do that. Absolutely could. Um, who, <laughs> who plays? Uh, yeah. Anyway, never mind. Um, but yeah, I kind of. Uh, yeah, I would I would second that recommendation on Cut Gems. And Kurt, what would you recommend for this? Well, just on Adam Sandler, I have I'm trying to think of it, uh, what the word is for it, but I, I have a real bad issue with misidentifying him with um, Adam Sandler and what's the other one, Ben Stiller. I, I I don't know why, but I can never get the two right. So whenever I see them on screen, I'm like, that's um, that's um, and every time Move a Half comes up, she goes, "Who's that?" Uh, 
uh, and every time I get it wrong. So I have no idea. There must be some <laughs> something wrong with me in that. I just can't identify that person. But um, So what you would like to recommend as an Adam Sandler movie is Zoolander, right? Uh, yes. Zoolander is the best Adam Sandler yes, movie. Yes, yeah. and, and you could say that, and I still wouldn't know which one that is. So, yeah, so I have a real, real problem with that. I don't know why. Um, something that I've watched recently um, that I would say to people to give a go, which I thought was going to be a straight-up, um, comedy uh, and wasn't so a little bit like this actually is Paul Rudd's Living With Yourself on Netflix uh, I really enjoyed that and it's uh, it's only 8 episodes long but you know think uh, Multiplicity with Michael Keaton for example it's uh, you know it, it was perfectly acceptable to watch I quite enjoyed it it's, uh, especially in these times when we're looking for something to to take our mind off stuff it was certainly something to uh, you know let your mind wander a little bit and watch it and have a bit of fun so um, living with yourself would be particularly my kind of thing to go for I think Cool. I would recommend uh, myself a bunch of kind of 90s existential cinema uh, a bunch of stuff that kind of like came out around the same time as this and probably deserve to be in conversation with this so stuff like Dark City Alexis Price's Dark City which I don't think gets enough love uh, and is a fantastic film somewhat over- unfairly overshadowed by The Matrix but stuff like say Gary Ross's Pleasantville as well which deals with similar stuff it's very much about two 90s kids who get sent back into a 50s sitcom and end up kind of changing that world it's very much like a reverse Truman show instead of somebody trying to get out of a 50s sitcom you have somebody breaking into a 50s is that, is that in and black really and, like black that and well. white or color that's my question I'm not uh, <laughs> both uh, is the answer. yes yes is the answer to that one uh, but yeah i would i would absolutely recommend those as well and also like if you're watching some some of jim carrey's serious films are very good and you recommend at the start but eternal such has a spotless mind but also man on the moon as well i really really liked as well all right then so um if people are looking for a bit more kurt in their lives where can they find you online uh, find me on twitter at r muldrake that's r m u l d r a k e and we've just wrapped up season one of Star Trek Picard which Darren you kind of came on the the finale episode of which was fantastic Um, you can find that um, Twitter handle at Jean-Luc Podard and that's a podcast that myself and Tony Black do and obviously Tony's been on your show as well hasn't he so um, yeah so it's um, that's best place to find me at the moment on the Make It So podcast and and those two Twitter handles there Is is Picard out out yet and and where can I watch it and is it good? Uh, Star Trek Picard is out. It's uh, 10 episodes on Amazon Prime in the UK. And uh, I gave it an 8 out of 10. And Tony, I think, gave it a 6.5, 7 out of 10, I believe. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, and has some interesting themes in it. It's uh, a bit of a mismatch in certain elements of the 10 episodes. But, um, but overall, it's definitely worth a watch. I would keep in mind that okay. a, as far as Andrew's tastes are concerned, I suspect it may not be to your tastes <laughs> in terms of your Star Trek content um, based on past conversations. Right. It, it's much. It's no Star Trek 6. It's, it's much more first contact than Generations is probably the best way to describe it. Um, okay. Um, yes, but I, I, I enjoyed it. It's got a lot of pacing issues. It's got some plotting issues as well, but I thought it had some good thematic stuff and seeing Patrick Stewart do his thing is always worth doing. Uh, in my opinion. And, well. and if you're wanting to see something at the moment, watch Patrick Stewart on Twitter do his sonnets, because they're amazing. Ah, doing his little bit to keep us all safe. Exactly. Well, that's that's the kind of discovery I want to see. <laughs> Whoa! Well played and shots fired. Well done, Andrew. I don't think we're going to top that, actually. So, you can join us next week on the podcast, where the wonderful Carl J. Sweeney will be joining us to discuss James Cagney uh, in White Heat. Take it easy. And if we don't see you, Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. 
Bye. Bye.